Good morning, Rock Creek. Would you please stand with me for the reading of God's Word? Our Old Testament reading this morning comes from Zechariah 9, 9 through 12. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from river to the ends of the earth. As for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. Return to your fortress, your prisoners of a hope. Even now I announce that I will restore, restore twice as much to you. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. Our New Testament reading comes from Luke 19, 28 through 44. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the hill called Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it, just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloak on the road, and when he came near the place where the road goes down to the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees of the crowd in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, even, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. The gospel of our Lord. Praise be to you, Lord Jesus Christ. One of the enjoinders from the mysterious writer of the Hebrews is that he says, you know, in the past, there have been people who, like us, had the good news of God's benevolent reign preached to them, the offer of rest, the offer of dwelling in promised land and having the security of being well fathered by the king who speaks creation into being. They had that offered to them, but they did not combine their faith 
with the message that they heard, and so the message was useless to them. One of the reasons that we have a moment before we have the preaching of God's word where I invite you to ask God to speak to you, to address you, and to make yourself a different kind of hearer than you would be by yourself is because all of this stuff we could say that's meant to be really good news can feel like poisonous news or like no kind of news or like humdrum news you've heard a thousand times before unless you're given faith and are prepared to respond to it in some way. So, you're already here. If you were to leave, it would be really embarrassing. So you may as well listen and respond. God has something good for you, I guarantee it. Ask him to give it to you. Let's take a moment. Lord, hear your people as they offer up to you their desire. It might just be for the awakening of their wants. It might be that with some trepidation they come because we're all a little nervous to hear from you because we're afraid it might be bad news, hard news, unattainable news. And so sneak around our sense of threat. Let us hear delight. Let us hear your tone. Let us hear your benevolence, your tenderness, your strength aimed toward us and for us. Hear your people as they ask you to speak to them. Okay, we know you've heard us, and we thank you. Now will you make our hearts very spacious? Will you broaden our perception of you? Will you make the ground of our souls very fertile and amenable to the seeds of your word that many good and fragrant things would blossom from our lives because of these words preached. I remind you that you have promised that your word will not return void and that you have promised if we ask anything in your name, you will do it so the Son may bring glory to the Father. I know it is your will that these people know delight in your presence. So do that now. Put your words in my mouth for their joy, for their progress. Come, Holy Spirit, we invite you. Amen. Some 20 years ago, I was riding in a car with a pastor. He was probably wearing khaki pants. It was probably a Toyota Camry. And he was from New York. He had spent the bulk of his adult life in New York. And so we were driving, and he did this thing because he didn't know any better because he had been malformed in places like New York where they apparently make bad salsa. Have you seen those commercials many years ago? 
But we were driving along and something happened and he honked in the car at someone. And every sort of nerve ending of mine went on red alert. What are you doing? Why are you honking? We do not do this here. We don't use the horns on our car. What is wrong with you, man? He had been misshapen. He had thought that the horn of his car was like a sword. It was like a weapon on his car because he had been in a violent place where people drive in an adversarial arrangement. And so the horn was my battle realm against yours in the streets of New York City. But you're in the Gentile South, man. We do not use horns for this purpose. If at all. Because you see, horns on a car, they can have multiple purposes. They are useful. There's a kind of horn that someone could honk if you're, say, at the bottom of the mountain at the red light there and you're redeeming the time by reading something. And the light turns green, but you're not watching. But the car behind you is watching and has some place to be, apparently. And so they might give you a little beep, beep. And you recognize that honk. Its tone is familiar, and you go, oh, oh. It, it jostles you awake from whatever better thing you were doing to see, oh, yes, I'm on the road, I'm driving, there's a green light, I mean to go. And then you, you profusely say, as if telepathically it would communicate backwards, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, 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 sorry. In that southern way, you have to say sorry at least seven times for it to take. Well, so that's a good kind of honk. It's a tender thing. It's a warning to which you're supposed to respond. It's intended to create a response. It's not intended to be taken hostily. There's a kind of honk that can happen if you're driving along on the interstate and you're in a moderate, modest-sized car and a semi-truck is about to come over into your lane and you want to avert a crisis and so you lay on the horn. And if you've had cars like mine, it would sound something like this. And you're secretly hoping that he doesn't have the radio on so that he can hear you. This horn has no value. It's not loud enough. But you lay on the horn because you don't want him to do something that neither of you wants to have happen. You're averting a crash, a tragedy, some kind of cataclysmic collision. Those are honks of warning that are done out of care. But there's another kind of honk. This is what my friend was doing. This is why he needed to be schooled. And he quickly learned. But there's another kind of honk. I've talked to my kids about this. There's the, there's the punitive honk. And you've maybe given this honk to someone or maybe you have received this honk from someone. And this is the honk where you're driving along and you do something wrong. You pull out in front of somebody or you didn't go at the red light or you're not going fast enough in the lane where you're driving. And the person behind you, they probably have a very big truck or a really fast car or somewhere very important to be. But whatever it is, the pandemic has gotten to them. <laughs> 
and its vestiges remain like a lingering virus, a long-haul anger. And so they go around you as fast as they can, and they glare at you, and they go, and there might be finger gestures. There might be mouthing, which you can't read lips, but you can totally read their lips. And you think, like your mom said, your face is going to get stuck like that. And that kind of honking is done in malice. That kind of honking is purely to let you know what a loser of a driver you are. It's only meant to be a manifestation of shame that you receive from their hostility. My friends said, yeah, I guess that's why one day when I was newly here and I honked at someone, the fellow at whom I honked, he, he rolled down his window and he stuck out his arm with an extended digit. We'll call it the middle one. And he just went down the road doing his hand like this with an extended middle finger at me, just waving it like a Tennessee flag. There is a kind of response of hostility to the hostile honk. Why am I talking about honking horns? It's a good question. You'll at least remember I talked about honking horns. Well, this episode in Jesus' actual life when God stepped into the world at the time of his coming, to live under the law in the fullness of time, to bear our sins and to live life in our place. We see Jesus coming into the holy city on his last week of earth, his last week on earth before his death. And he comes into the city and does this pause in front of it. See, he has been giving honks along the way. And those honks have been ignored, and some of them have been misinterpreted. And so they have generated not proper response. They've generated hostility in response. They've generated extended middle fingers. They've generated scowls and anger and defensiveness. And as he comes as a king into the holy city, There are people who understand what's going on. There are people who have responded to him in some way. They at least understand that the Messiah is coming, even though they have no idea what that means. And so he comes in on this cult, which, as you've heard many times before, ancient kings in Israel would ride on colts when they were proclaiming peace, on war horses when they were going out to fight. But he comes in on this cult as a proclamation of peace, which is what Dave just read from Zephaniah, this peace that was going to extend throughout all the nooks and crannies of God's breathed into existence order. And as he comes into the city, they're throwing cloaks on the ground and they are praising him. People are praising him. 
joyfully praising God in loud voices for all the miracles they have seen and saying things like, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. A spectacle of some sort and the leaders, the Pharisees in the crowd, they honk their horn at Jesus. Tell, yes, it is funny. It's a funny sound. I'm going to do it a, n- a number of times just to keep you awake. And I might just do it in other sermons to keep you awake. They honk their horn at Jesus. They think he's committing a foul. And they say, like blowing a whistle, tell them to shut up. They're misattributing here. They're being too effusive here. Demonstrate some humility, will you? They're fawning over you. They're praising you like you're a king. They're praising you like you're God himself. And Jesus said, well, you, you know, I, as he often does, he answers things in ways they don't expect. I could, I guess. I could tell him to shut up. I could tell him to stop praising me. But you see, the thing is, is they're joined in with a creational chorus. They're right now doing the very thing they were made to do, and they're right now doing the thing that the trees of the field are going to do, and the birds every day that they awaken and you hear their song are doing with their carols raised, and they're doing the thing that the daffodil is doing when it pops up even when it's premature, and they're doing the thing that Lookout Mountain does as it stands hulking and sturdy and familiar and reliable, holding us all up. They are singing the praise of their creator. They're doing what they're supposed to do. So if I said, you shut up, well, everything else in creation would just be tuning up the chorus. Even the stones would cry out. You're involved in something that isn't just about Jerusalem. What's happening here is something that's happening everywhere. This is something that God is up to. There's a visitation, he'll later say. They should have realized it. And as he approaches the city, the city of Jerusalem, it says he sees the city And he weeps over it. He sees the city and he weeps over it. He looks out over the city, which is the center of Israel's life. It's the epicenter of all of their religious and their social and their communal being, their identity as a nation. It's where the temple is. Perhaps he's looking out over and seeing the the dome of this temple and this gold roof, the place where God is. This is to be the central feature. They had this vocation for the nations where they were to radiate to the world and summon the nations to the worship of the God who breathed the world into being. This is where it was to happen. This is where sins got taken care of, where sacrifices were made where you could take the load off of you and put it on an animal and you could learn that a substitute would carry the wrath of God away from the person as he kept covenant with them and they keep covenant with him. And Jesus sees all of that and he weeps. 
And it's worth pausing and saying, why is he weeping? Maybe your kids have done that before. Why are you crying, mommy? Watching a show, why are they crying? They know the tears mean something. And in that shortest of verses in John chapter 11, if you've done any Bible trivia, what's the shortest verse in the Bible? Jesus wept. But it's a different word used here. And the recognition is somehow that, you know, if just a, if just a lone tear was making its weary way down Jesus' cheek, who would have noticed that? It's something like him breaking into tears, something like sobbing here, something like maybe an ugly cry that we might call it. That something so punctures the wind from his lungs, something so catches his guts that they shake. And he weeps. And he sobs. And it's noticeable. Frederick Buechner has said, you never know what may cause them. The sight of the Atlantic Ocean can do it. Or a piece of music. Or a face that you've never seen before. A pair of somebody's old shoes can do it. Or, he didn't say this, but a pair of somebody's little tiny red keds that they used to wear if you've had kids with little cute shoes. Almost any movie made before the great sadness that came on the world after World War II could do it, or a horse cantering across the meadow, or a basketball team running out onto the gym floor before the game. You can never be sure where they're going to show up. You can never be sure, but you can be sure of this. Whenever you find tears in your eyes, especially unexpected ones, it is well to pay the closest of attention. Whenever you see tears in your eyes, it is well to pay the closest of attention. They are not only telling you about the secret of who you are, but more often than not, God is speaking to you through them of the mystery of where you have come from and is summoning you to where if your soul is to be saved, you should go next. That's a really lovely Reflection on the presence of unexpected tears. They come up on you sometimes when you're just talking about a thing and you're explaining something and then out of nowhere you find yourself <coughs> trying to hold something back. You see something and all of a sudden you're taken up, caught short and <sighs> something starts to move in you a bit. And he says, you ought to pay attention when you find tears unbidden and unexpected. You ought to pay attention because they're telling you something about you and they're telling you something from God. And I would urge you to hear Beekner and say, look here what they tell us in the Gospels, that they've bothered to record this episode of Jesus before his Holy Week and this episode of him standing in front of the center of Jewish life and weeping. 
sobbing. What is God telling us? What does that tell us about Jesus with his tears? Well, he gives us some explanation because he he has some emotional intelligence. He's been journaling over these things. But he says to the city, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The thing that makes Jesus weep is that he cannot bear the resistance of people whose ruin he opposes. He can't bear their resistance. He has this, as Dave Hansen said, gut-shaking compassion. And compassion, says Frederick Buechner again, is this often fatal capacity of putting yourself in the shoes and the skin of another. And you know this feeling sometimes with a child or someone who's dear to you or someone, some image that you're seeing on TV perhaps in Ukraine right now where you feel in all your nerve endings and in the depths of your soul the sorrow of the other and you can't feel okay while they're not okay. And Jesus, who has come to that which was his own, he has come to rescue his people. He has come to the people who were supposed to be waiting for him, like mothers and fathers waiting to receive an expectant child. And they looked at him and they said, we don't know who you are. Worse, let's kill him. And he's reflecting as he looks out over this city. And we could reflect as we watch his tears and think, what has he offered them? Why do they want to kill him? Well, he says, I've been trying to bring you peace. And just as an aside, this is free. It's not part of the sermon. Paul says in Romans 15, everything that was written in the past, everything that was written in the past, he's talking about in the scriptures. And now his word is scriptures was written so that we might have endurance. It was written to instruct us. These words were written to instruct us so that we might hear them and get encouragement and that we might hear them and get endurance. And so Jesus' tears are a horn, a horn honking. And the question is, are they a horn that's saying, judgment's coming on you? Boom! Love it! Woo! Like he's a professional wrestler on Friday night. And he's grabbed the mic. And he's proclaiming his greatness and the peril and the devastation of his enemies. Or is his a honk of warning? They've ignored his warning. And they're about to collide with a semi-truck because it's happening. And what is God saying to us? What do we see about Jesus? Well, we see that he is someone whose kingship is not always wanted by others. They don't always understand it. Do you know nobody in this episode understands what's happening? And that should be a great encouragement to us. The people praising him as he comes into the city, they're praising him not because they think he's going to die and that's going to be awesome and that the, king's gonna, the kingship of God is going to take a long time to bring into effect. They don't realize it's an inauguration as John Michael realizes and taught us. That's right. It's an inauguration. 
It's the start of a reign of him taking back what is rightfully his. In the story right before this, he tells them, as he's about to enter Jerusalem, he says to the people who are thinking that he's going to set up the kingdom of God all at once. He tells them a story because he knows they're going to be disillusioned. He knows that we're going to be disillusioned. He knows that we're going to get discouraged. They think this kingship is going to come immediately. That's why they're praising him. They had the wrong idea. And people who reject him, they also had the wrong idea. And he tells this story in Luke chapter 18, right? It's the beginning of 19, sorry. Where he says a certain king of noble birth, a man of noble birth, went off to a distant town to be named king. And when he left, he gave his servants some money to hold them over and to invest while he was gone. And while he was gone, he received a delegation. There was an online campaign to raise petition to cancel his kingship. We do not want this man to be king over us, it said. We don't want him to be king. But here's the line. But he was made king anyway. His subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we don't want this man to be our king. He was made king, however, and returned home. Sometimes when people hear about the judgment of God, they get hostile in return. They get defensive in return. They stick up their middle finger in return. They think that somehow God has some delight in this. And of course, Dallas Willard has said that hell is the best that God can do for some people. Because the future that's coming is a future where Jesus Christ's kingship, which is presently in effect, is made evident to everybody everywhere. And if you don't want to have anything to do with him, if your friends don't want to have anything to do with him, if you don't love him, if you don't care about him, if you don't want to listen to him, if you don't want any of the things he's offering, why would you want to be in the new world where he is all in all? He's, they're not going to have a son there because he is the son. That's the image. Why would you want to be there if you want nothing to do with him? And so some people don't want him to be king. I don't want you to be king of he was made king, however. And so Jesus is weeping over people who don't want him to be king. And he's puzzling as we ought to say, wait, wait, wait. What does his kingship mean? If you had known the things that were meant for peace, the peace that it was on offer, but now it's hidden from your eyes. Do you know that throughout this gospel, here are the things that Jesus has done. He said things like, hey, you search the scriptures because you think that by them you have eternal life. But those scriptures are about me. And you refuse. You refuse to come to me to have life. Jesus has just told him a story about a blind beggar who's crying out, acknowledging his kingship. Oh, king, son of David, have mercy on me. Oh, he had the right instinct. That's what this king gives, mercy. Undeserved favor. Deeply desired pity. 
And so that he stops when he hears the cry. That's what this king does. And he says, what is it that you want? While everybody around him is saying, shut it. Shut your pie hole. Don't bother him. And Jesus says, what do you want, blind man of no account who cannot see, who cannot help himself? He said, I want to see. And the son of David, the king, says, here, your faith has healed you. And he restored his sight. And when children are being brought to him and they scorn him, get those kids away from him. He's got important things to do and they smell funny and they've got a virus. He says, these kids, these kids are the epitome of what my kingdom's all about. In fact, you can't even receive my kingship unless you do it like a little kid. As simply as that, as trustingly as that. Taking me at my word and being as helpless and little and insignificant as that and rejoicing in my kingship and letting those little kids come to me. He tells a story about a widow wearing a judge who don't care a thing about him or about men or about God, wanting justice, wanting repair, wanting to be protected from her adversary so that they will keep praying and not give up. He has demonstrated a kingship where he said, everything about your life that's all wrong, I mean to make all right. Are you crippled? I want to make you walk. Are you forlorn? I want to give you my joy. Are you suffering from the bumps and bruises of bouncing through this world without shock absorbers? I want to give you my compassion. Just as my sufferings overflow into your life, so too will my compassion, my peace I give you, my healing I give you. Do you want to be liberated from yourself? Do you want to be free from your sins? Do you want to be free from thinking of yourself all the time? Do you want to be free from suspicion of other people? Do you want to be free from being at odds with everybody all the time? That's what I've come to do. To make you like my Father in heaven who makes his sun to shine on the just and the unjust. I've come to do all of that. And they all said no. He said, I don't want that. Like a mother offering her kids food who know they're about to be at a track meet where it's 40 degrees for six hours, 100 hours. And all day long she's saying, would you like some food? Would you like something to drink? Would you like something to eat? You're going to get hungry. You're going to get hungry. And they say, no, leave me alone. I'm playing a game. Leave me alone. I don't want to do that. Leave me alone. And all she's trying to do is give them food. And Jesus said, all I've been trying to do is give you the food of the peace that your heart craves. And now you're discovering what a real thing it is to be a human. Because there is such a time when the words too late arrive. You can honk at a big truck. He might not hear you. At some point it's too late. You crash into reality. And Jesus is so badly wanting. In fact, we're told the reason he delays in his return is because he's so confoundingly patient. He wants everyone to come to receive his kingship because he wants the healing of the nations. And if you have any wayward children or any wayward friends or any waywardness in your heart, you know there is a certain tragedy that you can't understand. Why would you refuse your defense? Why would you refuse your rescue? Why would you fight against your rescue? Why would you reject the welcome that I want to give you. Why would you reject God's welcome? 
It's a mystery we do these sorts of things. But God will let us do these sorts of things. And so he weeps. Because the days will come when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. And they will dash you to the ground, you and your children within your walls, and they will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. At some point of refusing, God says, okay, too late. That should be a little scary. But he's not trying to scare you who want him to be your king. He's weeping over people who refuse his offers of generosity, who say, I don't want your peace. I don't want your love lying in my heart. I don't want your rule here. And he's saying if any are in this hearing, anytime he ever threatens anybody, because this thing happened in AD 70, the Romans did descend upon the city, and it was awful, a great siege where they surrounded the city and they starved everybody out, and there's gruesome details, but the city wound up being destroyed and its inhabitants mostly were dead. This happened. This judgment came. But as I never tire of telling you, Jesus gives warnings throughout the scriptures in hopes of them not coming true. He says, repent for the kingdom is at hand because he wants, guess what? People to turn around. He honks the horn when you're at the light, not paying attention because he wants you to look the right way. The reason you don't recognize, the reason we don't recognize and we stop realizing the goodness of his kingship is because we're looking the wrong way and so we need to make a spiritual U-turn. We need to turn around. And one of the gifts of these passages like these, one of the gifts of Christianity, that if you hear this, and if you're like me, what happens to me when I hear about the kingship of Christ, I find myself kind of doing this. Like, oh, that scares me. Oh, I want more of that. That's how I experience it. And one of the great gifts of our faith is this recognition that God requires an enormous amount of his people and he grants the very thing that he requires. You ought to write that down and think about it because it's very true. And if you don't get that, you won't do Christianity well. God requires an enormous amount from his people. And he grants, you know what grant means? He gives. He grants the thing that he requires. So if you find yourself today or on any day saying, Lord, I don't think I want you to be king of my life today, but yet I want you to be king of my life today. I'm confused. I don't want to do this thing that you're calling me to do. It doesn't sound good to me. You're going to have to change me. And you said by your own admission, King Jesus, that apart from you, I could do nothing. I would bear no fruit apart from you. Your life your kind of love, your kind of generosity, your kind of forgiveness, it will not happen unless I'm abiding in you. So guess what? If you don't like Jesus being king of your life today and it's frightening you a little bit, well, then go to him and tell him and say, change this state of affairs for me. Your kingship's supposed to be good news, but for some reason, my heart's thinking it's bad. So something needs to be done. 
Work on me until I find that your love for me is better than life. Work on me until I receive this peace you promised to give. Work on me until I experience this cleansing that you have promised when you came to take away our sins. Work on me until I understand and can produce a kind of love for my enemies even that I could not do on my own. I was recounting this week to a story about one of our elders Many years ago, his wife and he were on the verge of divorce. His wife left him. She came back, and they decided something. They said, we are going to be happy together even if it kills us. And that could be bleak. But 50 years later, you see the beautiful fruit of it. And I think that's a lot of what Jesus' kingship is like for us sometimes because we have this remaining allergy in us. His spirit comes to dwell in us, and so we want him on the one hand, and there are parts of us that resist him with everything. And so we just keep coming to him with the promise that whoever comes to him, will he'll never turn away. And the belief that his kingship means reconciliation, means the removal of sins, means draining you of the resentments that are ruining your life, means giving you purpose, means giving you an energy and joy to do the things you can't do on your own. And so you're saying, in a sense, Jesus, we're going to be happy together even if it kills me and it might kill parts of you. But I promise you, they're only the parts that need to die. And he's going to bring to life and keep bringing to life. Because he's done this in a lot of you already in so many ways. He's going to keep bringing to life very beautiful things. So that your heart's like his. And so that you too weep at the world's unwellness and join him in bearing witness. When we bear witness to him, when we, we help gather with him, we're not saying that we know everything. We're just saying that we have recognized his coming and that he is our king and that he is the way and the truth and the life and that no one's coming to God without him or not through him. So we've come to him and we're on the path and now we're saying grant what you require. Give us what you ask of us so that we can bear witness to you so we can be the happy inhabitants of your kingship. Amen.